Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this edition of the Net Positive focuses on EcoNet News. Volume 22, issue number 5, October 2020. Flanagan's Ecologic, Hiking Aspen's Lost Man Loop. September 21st, 2020, Aspen, Colorado. Gorgeous fall day, the aspen leaves turning yellow and orange, painting great swaths of shimmering gold on the mountainsides, accenting rock slides and meadows, hillsides carpeted, in reds and oranges and browns, enchanted. Not sure why the drive up Independence Pass the other day made me queasy. It is scary, but I've been up and down that incredible road perhaps a hundred times. I've biked to the summit a half dozen times. Heading up out of Aspen, there are dangerously steep drop-offs to the right. It's a narrow, winding road with traffic coming at you. Yikes! Some guy with a trailer. Every year, a car or two topples off this harrowing road. This year, a lucky lady lived after her car tumbled 500 feet down the cliff. Made it to the lower trailhead. For the lost man loop, that is. We drop my rental and I jump into my brother's new bolt. And we proceed to the upper trailhead, passing the ghost town of Independence. Hard to imagine living and mining there. Such altitude. Exposed mountain slopes. Avalanches of rocks and ice. The trail takes off from the final switchback, just before the road towers to the summit, arcing in a 6% grade trajectory to Independence Pass at 12,095 feet and the Continental Divide. Out of shape? No. Acclimated? Not that either. There's thin air up here. We begin to hike at 11,506 feet. We're above treeline. The trail follows a small, gurgling stream. The rocks are covered with lichen. The higher we get, the more pervasive the rocks are. No wonder they call these the Rockies. That makes the trail a bit treacherous. You want to take in all the views, but got to keep your eyes on the rocks. We pass the little lake, so peaceful, perched so high in the Rockies. A marmot pops up to check us out. For me, it's tough going. Nearly two hours of steady incline to Lost Man Pass at 12,810 feet. As we crest and incline, it's a sound of music moment. The hills are alive. The magnificence of the Rockies is omnipresent. Just to the east is Mount Elbert. Colorado's highest 14 are at 14,439 feet. This is massive geology. We can see for miles, humbled by the scale of these mountains. There's snow on the way down to Lost Man Lake, the remnants from a freak early winter storm a few weeks before. Colorado had an unprecedented 60-degree temperature swing from the heat of summer to snow. We slip and slide a bit on the mushy snow on the trail. I make a snowball and throw it. At the lake, we take basic lunch, apples, PBJ, carrots, and granola bars. For the next two hours, we're on a steady decline. The Lost Man Loop Trail meanders following the valley floor. We pass willows thirsting on streams. The wind whips through the valley. We traverse hillsides, rounding our way downstream. 
It's a massive and enchanted valley, completely devoid of human civilization. This is a cathedral. We're breathing in the splendor of the mountains. We're, spru- we're struck by the patterns in the carpet of grasses made by the streams. As we get lower, the ecosystem and its flora changes. We walk through evergreen forests. The stream is bigger now. My legs are tired. I'm stumbling a bit. A workout, a fulfilling trek, a bit unending. Then finally, there it is. The the telltale reservoir lets us know that we are getting back to civilization. A A welcome parking area on a narrow road 10 miles up Independence Pass. Six days later, and somewhat more acclimated, I hiked the maroon snowmass trail to Snowmass Lake with my lifelong friend Robert Sardinsky, Sardo, as well as daughters Sierra and Skye. It's an 8.5-mile uphill trek from the trailhead in Old Snowmass through aspen groves shimmering in the morning light, open meadows, pine forests, traversing rock slides. After five hours, we make it. Snowmass Lake is picture postcard perfect a broad expanse of clear, cold water shimmering, surrounded by 14ers, topped off with billowing clouds and fantastically clear blue skies above. We take lots of pictures and breathe in in the grandeur and intense beauty of it all. The 17-mile round trip leaves us wobbly that evening, inspired and, yes, a bit beaten up. A Green Hydrogen Future? A webinar put on by Stratagen made clear the huge role that green hydrogen may have in our future. While the lithium-ion revolution and batteries have stolen the front pages of the sustainability movement, there is a clear and powerful voice advocating the use of hydrogen, what the moderator, Dr. Laura Nelson from Stratagen, called the ultimate game-changer, and later the new strategic fuel for our generation. Leading the charge is the Green Hydrogen Coalition, www.ghcoalition.org. It has recently published the Green Hydrogen Guidebook, which can be downloaded for free. It addresses the production of hydrogen, its distribution, safety, and policy changes. While there are many issues to address, the coalition makes clear that hydrogen, and notably green hydrogen sourced from renewables, can, can play a very important, large, and positive role in our energy future. It works for cars, trucks, for trains, for planes, for buildings, and factories. The webinar was supported by a number of firms, including Southern California Gas, Bloom Energy, and MCE Energy. It presented a view of the breadth of applications across sectors from aviation to trucking to mining, putting the value of hydrogen in a new light for me. Air, land, and earth, multi-sectoral decarbonization began with the use of green hydrogen for aviation. Brilliant was the presenter, a Russian-born and educated and acclaimed scientist by the name of Val Miftakov. He is now at the helm of a company called Zero Avia, making electric planes that use hydrogen fuel. His primary point is that aviation is a segment that can use green hydrogen most, and which will accelerate the adoption of green hydrogen for all sectors, from mobility on land to heating and cooling buildings and powering industries. Miftikoff mentioned Greta Thunberg and her strong resistance to flying, rightly so, as its emissions are huge and growing. India and China and other developing countries are lapping up aviation for business and pleasure. This is having a very significant greenhouse gas impact in the wrong direction. 
Miftikoff mentioned that if you take a few international flights a year, aviation will dominate your footprint. Keeping aloft is inherently energy intensive. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants to make flying guilt-free by electrifying transport. Miftikoff presented the options for greening aviation. Batteries and electric propulsion are being tested, but fundamentally, he noted, batteries are too heavy, 50 times as heavy as conventional jet fuel for the same range. Biofuels are another option for aviation, but are dismissed as this fuel source is fundamentally unscalable to meet aviation needs. Synthetic fuels are non-economical and still stuck with a non-CO2 greenhouse gas emissions. An option is conventional jet engines using combusted hydrogen, a scenario in which hydrogen is burned. This solution requires large volumes, since hydrogen fuel is 10 times less dense than jet fuel. What Miftikoff favors and believes is suitable and scalable for the entire aviation industry is the use of green hydrogen powering fuel cells and an electric powertrain. Fuel cells, through which electricity is produced through a chemical process, deliver much higher efficiency than combustion turbines. Thus, this solution promises lo longer range, lower costs, and zero emission. And it's catching on. Airbus is retooling its Airbus 320 for hydrogen, reworking its product line for use of liquid hydrogen tanks in the wings, fuel cells coupled with each engine. Next up, trucks. Trucking and transport have been a dominant source of greenhouse gas emissions. Since 2016, transportation has been the dominant US source. Trucking requires rapid fueling, and that, can be, and that can be accomplished with hydrogen. Note that both battery-based and hydrogen fuel cell-based vehicles use electric drivetrains. Elizabeth Fretheim presented on behalf of Nikola Motor Company in the news that very week for deceptive claims about his technology. This she did not discuss. Instead, she presented valuable perspectives on the revolution that electric trucks represent, as there's no time for an evolutionary approach. Nikola is building electric trucks, hydrogen fueling stations, and off-road vehicles for military and recreation. It's building a consumer pickup truck with General Motors, with power export capability, meaning that it can plug into another EV or even facility and provide power. It's, build, it's building refuse trucks, a perfect application for electric mobility, given these trucks stops and starts. Class A freight trucks can either be battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell electric. Ranges is the differentiator. Batteries have a 150 to 300 mile range. Fuel cell trucks can achieve a 500 mile range. Hydrogen prov provides for a lighter technology and quicker fueling time. Fretheim discussed the development of and need for alternative fuel corridors for trucking and the need for policy changes to shift subsidies from fossil fuels to electrification. She discussed the proposed European hydrogen highway system. The final presenter discussed the niche application for green hydrogen, namely the mining industry. Fast forward, yes, soon there will be green diamonds mined with 100% green energy. Michael Caro works for Hatch, a consulting engineering and project implementation firm. Large mining operators have made major commitments to sustainability and zero emissions. That means no use of diesel or other fossil fuels for trucks, machinery, and operations. Caro's job is to turn that commitment into functional operations. The Raglan Nickel Mining Complex in northern Quebec is off the grid, with 6 megawatts of wind, 3 megawatts of batteries, and a hydrogen fuel cell system. 
It looks really cold there, just south of Deception Bay. Caro shows pictures of mining equipment, including a massive 300-ton truck that can refill its hydrogen fuel tank in 10 minutes. He shows pictures of machines that crush ore. At Raglan, hydrogen is used for heating, process energy for fuel, and to generate electricity. During the Q&A, the safety of hydrogen was raised. So many of us have the perception of the dangers of hydrogen, but this was summarily dismissed. The presenters stated that the use of hydrogen has been proven to be safe, that there are already 100 million tons of hydrogen produced each year. It is a known process. There are engineering standards in place to assure safety. What's really happening now, what we learned, is that hydrogen is being applied in new use cases, in vehicles, planes, buildings, and industries, including mining. Beyond these new applications are commitments to green hydrogen. That is, by definition, emissions-free. There is momentum in the green hydrogen space. The use of hydrogen is accelerating in multi-sector applications. Thanks, Stratagen. Stay tuned. Residential Fuel Cells for Energy Resilience Microgrid news is a good read for those who A. recognize that the grid is less and less stable due to climate change and B. who are committed to finding resiliency solutions that are carbon-free, financeable, and scalable. Microgrid News reports that the, that the massive fires in the West are causing smoke that is blocking out the sun to generate photovoltaic energy. Smoke and solar don't mix. Now consumers are adding to their solar and storage systems with solar plus storage plus fuel cells. Instant On is a residential microgrid developer. The smoke from California wildfires is blocking up to 95% of production of the microgrid systems that it has installed in the Bay Area. In one case, a solar system that would normally be generating 40 kilowatt hours a day only produced 1.25. Making the case for residential fuel cells, Instant On CEO notes that fuel cells can power a house 24-7 and take less time to install than a solar microgrid. Now Instant On is working with homeowners to install blue gen fuel cells in homes to serve as backup for the, in these instances. The company plans to use fuel cells in three veteran communities, comprising nearly 4,000 homes that each will have a microgrid. The pilot Envision involves 5 kW solar, 40 kWh battery storage, and an advanced home energy management system to isolate critical loads, and a 1.5 kW fuel cell for each home. BlueGen was recently approved by Public Service Electric and Gas for installations on Long Island, New York. While subject to local jurisdiction from a utility standpoint, the fuel cell are treated just like a gas appliance. They may be problematic, however, in a growing number of California cities which have banned natural gas in new construction. BlueGen is a micro-CHB, combined heat and power system, with a track record in the United Kingdom and other European countries, designed for homes, small businesses, and public buildings. Each washing machine-sized unit supplies 13,000 kilowatt hours per year. Thus, a single fuel cell can meet a home's electricity needs in whole or in part depending on usage. It boasts production of power at 50% of the cost of conventional sources and 60% system efficiency using natural gas or biomethane. The fuel cells also generate heat, which can be used by tying into a home's domestic hot water heating system. BlueGen boasts environmental benefits. 240 grams of greenhouse gas emissions per kWh versus German power plant mix 
550 grams for KWH. Other selling points are ease of installation, standard connections, and compact size. BlueGen's energy resilience technology is based on the Solid Power Group's solid oxide fuel cell. Solid Power is in the high temperature fuel cell space, developing, manufacturing, and marketing fuel cell systems in Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and Australia. With BlueGen, the company offers micro CHP systems. Closer to home, Watt is based in Pennsylvania and makes a 1KW solid oxide fuel cell. Panasonic is adding a fuel cell especially designed for condos to its lines of end-farm residential fuel cells. General Electric's Green Pivot General Electric announced on September 21st that it will no longer build coal-fired power plants. GE Senior Vice President Russell Stokes noted that, with a continued transformation of GE, we are focused on power generation businesses that have attractive economics and a growth trajectory. Good timing. A day after announcing that it would get out of the coal power business, GE announced that it has been chosen to supply turbines for what will be the world's largest offshore wind farm. The Dogger Bank A and B wind farm will use 190 Halliade X13 13 megawatt turbines. The wind farm's first two phases will have a capacity of 2.4 gigawatts. This is the first use of the Halliade X13, a massive machine. GE notes that one spin of its blades can generate enough electricity to power a UK household for more than two days. Walmart's regeneration. Zero net is a buzzword term in the energy and environmental worlds. The goal is to cut carbon, to cut waste, and to promote clean and healthy communities. Regeneration takes it a step further. It inherently recognizes that things need to be fixed. Our air, forests, oceans, rivers, lakes. In fact, many ecosystems need to be restored after being taxed and abused. We need to actively clean our communities, our waterways, our air. Companies need to rethink the way they do business, and in, in cases, their businesses. To be sustainable, it's not just about zeroing out our current impact, but instead it's about regenerating healthy ecosystems. And in this regard, a new Walmart announcement put it in the spotlight. With 11,500 stores in 27 countries and fiscal year revenues of $524 billion, in 2020, this guerrilla retailer is leading corporate America in its commitments and directions. Some of the commitment headlines. Walmart is committed to zero emissions by 2040. It is committed to restoring 50 million acres of land and 1 million square miles of ocean by 2030. It's the corporate commitment to leadership that is perhaps most exciting. We want to play an important role in transforming the world's supply chains to be regenerative. The company is looking beyond decarbonizing its global operations. It is on a path to be regenerative, one that works to restore, renew, and replenish, and encourages others to do the same. Our vision at Walmart is to help transform food and product supply chains to be regenerative, working in harmony with nature to protect, restore, and sustainably use our natural resources. Walmart, based in Bentonville, Arkansas, now claims 15 years of sustainability leadership to help combat the cascading loss of nature threatening the planet.
It has a commitment to 100% renewable power by 2035 with wind, solar, and other renewables, electrifying all vehicles, including long-haul trucks by 2040, using nothing but low-impact refrigerants, and electrification for heating in stores, clubs, data, and distribution centers by 2040. The regenerative efforts are impressive. The regenerative efforts are impressive. Walmart will continue its efforts to preserve at least one acre of natural habitat for every acre of land developed by the company in the United States. It is driving adoption of regenerative agricultural practices, sustainable fisheries, and forest protection and restoration. It is investing in and working with suppliers to source from place-based efforts that help preserve natural ecosystems and improve livelihoods. To date, Walmart powers 29% of its operations with renewable energy and diverts 80% of its waste from landfills and incineration globally. It is also working with its suppliers. The Gigaton Project's goal is to avoid a gigaton of greenhouse gases by 2030. So far, more than 2,300 suppliers have signed on. Since 2017 and in aggregate, they have registered 230 million metric tons of avoided emissions. California to ban gas-powered cars. The executive order makes sense as the state of California is on fire. Furthermore, transportation accounts for 50% of all greenhouse gas emissions in California. A clear indication of climate change, the ominous fires are threatening our health and livelihoods. Nearly every California is breathing bad air, a very sharp and personally invasive reminder of nature's fury. California Governor Gavin Newsom's executive order curbs the sale of new gasoline and diesel-powered automobiles and passenger trucks by 2035. That target is anticipated to achieve more than a 35% reduction in greenhouse gases and an 80% improvement in nitrous oxide emissions. Concurrently, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, will develop regulations for medium and heavy-duty vehicles to be emissions-free by 2045. 2035 for drayage trucks, defined as shipping goods short distance, e.g. from port to rail terminal. Newsom noted that cars shouldn't melt glaciers or raise sea levels threatening our cherished beaches and coastlines. Mandragore, a Paris design firm, Rescubica, has designed and proposed a massive 2,400-foot building for New York City that will trap carbon emissions in the atmosphere. That's taller than the Freedom Tower at One World Trade Center at 1,776 feet. The building was conceived in response to New York City's City of Tomorrow project that aims to make the city carbon neutral by 2050. The project's design was inspired by the Mandrake plant. The proposed structure would be built on Roosevelt Island and East River and is designed as the world's tallest carbon sink, absorbing more greenhouse gas emissions than it emits. Mandragore would have over 160 floors, 36 wind turbines, 1,600 trees, 264,000 square feet of plant walls, a geothermal system for heating and cooling, and 75,000 square feet of solar panels. Each apartment includes a home office to reduce commuting. Mandragore would be largely built with wooden materials. China's Carbon Neutrality Commitment on September 22nd, at the United Nations General Assembly, China's President Xi Jinping announced the country's goal to achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. By itself, 
it could lower the projected global temperatures by the year 2100 by as much as 0.2 to 0.3 degrees centigrade. Currently, China accounts for nearly half of all global coal demand. It continues building coal-fired power plants, but Bloomberg Energy News reports that this era is quickly coming to an end. China's announcement is likely good politics as well as good policy. Unlike America, that is an oil and gas net exporter, China is a net importer. In recent years, China has become the global powerhouse in the renewable space. China now produces two-thirds of the world's solar panels and lithium-ion batteries, and 45% of all wind turbines. Experts believe that the top-down nature of Chinese government structure and policies developed by the National Development and Reform Commission bodes well for, for implementing aggressive climate targets. China's commitment to carbon neutrality will indeed be a game-changer if its policy is realized with action. The country's commitment follows a 2015 commitment to peak its emissions by 2030. Analysts believe this peak may actually occur in the next five years and ahead of schedule, given China's rapid urbanization and the fact that cities are far less greenhouse gas intensive than rural areas. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.